Hello, good morning. Very warm welcome to you to this session on government priorities for COP26. Good morning, I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm the director of the Institute. We're delighted to have had the Net Zero conference yesterday and thank you all for taking part in that and uh, sending in so many good questions and taking part with the uh, terrific panels that we had. And we're delighted to have today the Secretary of State, Kwasi Kwarteng, Secretary of State, as you know, for business, energy and industrial strategy. He's going to talk for about 10 minutes. Uh, I'm going to fire some questions at him for about 10 minutes and then there's about 10 minutes for you all to ask him questions. Please do start sending them in. You just have to paste them into the, 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 uh, the Q&A function and we will be right off. So with that, um, uh, Kwasi Kwarteng, very warm welcome. Thank you for joining Thank you. us. And we're looking forward to what you have to say. Very good to see you, uh, Bronwyn. And I just wanted to start really by uh, saying thank you very much for inviting me. I think this is uh, really important and the work you're doing is uh, extremely relevant and important to what we're trying to achieve uh, in government regarding net zero. I know that you've had a very uh, good uh, day yesterday. I know you've had excellent speakers. Uh, my friend and former colleague Amber Rudd was uh, there. Uh, Tim Lord, who I worked with uh, very closely as the energy minister, uh, Dieter Helm, Chris Stark, there's some excellent uh, uh, panelists. And also I think Darren Jones, who is the uh, chair, the current chair of the House of Commons Select Committee. What I wanted to do was really uh, sketch out um, my own journey uh, in this uh, in this space, which um, happily, I think, uh, combines with a lot of the evolution that the government uh, has had. Um, you'll remember, some of you, that I was a main energy minister, Minister of State uh, for Energy and Clean Growth in July 2019. Uh, I was appointed uh, to, as a Minister of State in Bayes. And really at the core of my, my brief then was uh, the net zero uh, plan, the net zero legislation. Uh, people will remember that the net zero legislation was passed in, at the end of June. You got the Royal Assent at the end of June 2019. And why I go through all this recent history is to show the evolution. We've really made a lot of uh, strong, I think, strides in, in, in the right direction on this. So coming in uh, in July 2019, all we had at that time uh, was the legislation. And what I commissioned uh, immediately was uh, some sort of pathways. You know, what did we have to do, uh, particularly in the power generation sector, uh, to get to net zero by, by 2050? Uh, that work uh, was, I think, really good work from the department. The department uh, focused uh, very intently on how we could get to net zero, the different elements, you know, the transport requirement, the um, power sector, heat and buildings, and I can talk about that a bit later. And over that time, over the 18 months uh, that I was energy minister, we managed to uh, inform very largely the Prime Minister's 10-point plan. I think Bayes uh, took a leading role in shaping uh, that 10-point plan. And then flowing from the 10-point plan and being allied to it, mutually supportive of it, was, of course, the Energy White Paper, which landed and was published in December 2020. It was only two months ago. But again, I think that was well received and, and gave an indication of our direction in terms of where we wanted to go. And so having been made Secretary of State uh, only five weeks ago, uh, in my conversations with the Prime Minister, it was very clear that delivering net zero, uh, sort of delivering all that policy work that I've been involved with as Minister of State was a clear priority of my, my job as Secretary of State. And of course, that co coincides, uh, as you all know, with uh, 2021 being the year of COP26. So my predecessor, Alok Sharma, as you will know, uh, wore both hats 
Uh, for a while, he was Secretary of State for Bayes and President of COP26, but it was inevitable, I think, um, once we postponed the COP26, that uh, we needed a full-time president of it, and, uh, and that's a job that he will achieve very ably. So what I'll do now is I'll just say a few words about the 10-point plan. I think it is extremely ambitious, and I think it dovetails uh, very neatly into our presidency of COP26. So uh, the 10 point plan, uh, the first point actually was the offshore wind ambition, which uh, we have 10.4 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity now, and we want to reach uh, 40 gigawatts uh, by 2030. And I think that's uh, eminently achievable. Uh, if you think that uh, I think about nine gigawatts uh, is in construction, there'll be a further 12 gigawatts, uh, up to 12 gigawatts in the auction this year. Uh, that takes us to about 31 and then subsequent auction we feel that we can get uh, to the to the 40, to the point where, let us say, if the, fourth, the fifth auction round is in 2023, and there's nine gigawatts uh, on stream there, then we can get to the 40 gigawatts uh, target. And I think that's hugely significant. Um, one of the big uh, things that, that's happened really since 2012 is that uh, coal has been almost eliminated from uh, the power generation system. Uh, and that's an extraordinary fact. Many of you around this table will remember, uh, if only dimly, the, the industrial struggles of the 1970s, uh, the miners' strike of the 1980s, uh, and really demonstrates how coal was absolutely central to the economic and largely political life as well of, of this country. And to have a situation where today coal is responsible for only 2% of the electricity that's generated in the UK is an extraordinary development. And I think that's something that we want to drive also in COP. We want to be able to um, persuade other countries uh, to come off coal. Uh, and that was something which I was very focused on as energy minister when I was uh, co-chair with uh, Jonathan Wilkinson of Canada of the Powering Past Coal Alliance. And that was a, a, a central, that'll be a central plank, I think, of our uh, energy diplomacy at COP26, encouraging other countries uh, to come off coal in the way that we, we, we've done. Um, the second uh, point of the, of the 10 point plan was, of course, uh, the hydrogen uh, economy. Uh, the Prime Minister outlined very uh, clear ambitions relating to hydrogen capacity, the production of hydrogen. And that's something, again, which we're very interested in uh, uh, talking about and uh, exchanging ideas uh, with uh, international partners, uh, colleagues, uh, and other countries. Uh, to see what we can do uh, to kickstart the hydrogen economy. And of course, all of this flows uh, from the fact that we have uh, encouraged uh, countries to increase their um, nationally determined contributions. It's very pleased to see uh, at the end of last year, the Prime Minister commit to 68% uh, reduction of in emissions by 2030. And of course, for, uh, it's reduction in emissions from 1990. That's the, the generally accepted uh, base a year. Um, and a 68% reduction uh, by 2030, I think, is achievable. It's challenging, no doubt, uh, but it is achievable. And if I look back to 1990 and look at where we've come, uh, and it's an often quoted statistic, but it, it deserves uh, considerable thought. We've managed to grow the economy uh, by nearly 80% uh, since 1980, about 75%, uh, over 75%. Yet carbon emissions have been reduced by nearly 45%. So it is possible. Uh, to have uh, economic growth and reduce uh, carbon emissions. And people say, well, uh, well, of course, you're just exporting those emissions. But even if you think about 
the export of emissions in terms of our trade, it's still more than a 30% reduction. Uh, obviously, we need more. We need to do more. Uh, we need to be more focused. I think there are difficult areas that we need to be uh, very imaginative about, um, <clears throat> particularly regarding the heating of homes and how we decarbonize uh, domestic heat sources, either through electrification, through heat pumps, but also, again, as I say, that through the possibilities of using hydrogen, uh, perhaps blending hydrogen in the in the gas network. So. Very broadly, uh, in conclusion, I think COP26 really will resolve around, revolve around four areas of, of discussion. Uh, I think uh, there's a huge uh, discussion to be had about green finance, uh, about TCFDs, about uh, you know, how we use uh, green accounting, green auditing, uh, and uh, hopefully we'll have a sovereign bond, a green sovereign bond for the first time uh, issued in the UK. Uh, I, I mentioned the coal agenda, trying to take people off coal. I think there's a huge discussion about the rollout of EVs, low carbon uh, emission uh, vehicles, phasing out uh, the internal combustion engine. There will be a discussion, I think, about uh, carbon uh, border adjusting, uh, carbon leakage, carbon border adjusting taxes, perhaps. I think that has to be part of a multilateral uh, discussion. And uh, the other thing which I haven't mentioned is, of course, how do we bring uh, people with us, particularly vulnerable people, people uh, in much poorer countries, um, how do we uh, try and uh, convince them uh, that a, a net zero future is uh, the right uh, path uh, for, for the global economy? I think that's, uh, again, a very challenging uh, issue in international energy diplomacy and international diplomacy. But that's something that we have to, a challenge that we have to, to meet. So those are four broad areas where I think uh, we, we hope to get a considerable uh, degree of agreement and make progress on uh, in the COP26. Thank Jose, you. thank you very much. That's uh, that, that's terrific. Um, in exactly ten minutes. Okay, it, do, it doesn't always happen. <laughs> let, me, um, let me start with some of the points that you have, in fact, touched on within the UK and mm. uh, before going on to, to other countries uh, and the COP. And um, I'm thinking particularly of the how to pay for it session that we had yeah. yesterday. Um, Paul Johnson, who's head of the the um, the IFS. Um, think tank um, said that the approach so far had been to put a lot of cost on electricity bills uh, and in, in effect this is regressive uh, that um, it hits poorer people harder but that in his his words uh, the politics had worked in that no one has noticed on the other hand we're really coming up to very big uh, investments that have to be made um, uh, to do something about domestic heating and transport. That's it. That's that's another question. And I, I wondered if you can just take us into government thinking a bit about, about so, this and, and who's going to pay. So I think um, one of the interesting things, and it wasn't really noticed actually, or wasn't much talked about in the last budget, was the the gas levy, um, which was the first time that uh, I think we'd ever done a move like this. Or certainly, the Treasury had introduced uh, something like this, and that was a, an implicit recognition of the fact that. Um, you know, there is a there is this discrepancy between electricity pricing and, and gas pricing. And, uh, you know, in order to incentivize uh, decarbonization, we, we would have to look at the relative pricing between electricity and gas. And I think that was uh, an interesting uh, step. So I think that um, one of the big challenges, uh, as you've pointed out, in terms of decarbonization is the domestic heating space. And clearly in that, um, you know, so long if gas is very, very cheap and electricity is relatively quite expensive, um, there's, there's, there's much less incentive to move away from gas, which emits carbon. 
to uh, a non-carbon emitting source of uh, power, uh, namely electricity. So we have to think about that. That's where I think actually hydrogen uh, uh, does offer a, an answer. And people who know about uh, the history of, of these things will know that town gas, if you, if you go back before we went to natural gas, uh, town gas, it was very dirty, but interestingly, uh, town gas, I think was 50% hydrogen. So in a way we're kind of going back uh, full circle. And I think uh, if we can uh, find a way of using hydrogen in, in, in our gas system, I think we, we, we can decarbonize uh, the heating system effectively uh, while also, um, you know, trying to maintain, uh, well, in the first instance, uh, trying to perhaps reduce the gap between electricity and, and natural gas, and then shifting over from natural gas to, to a hydrogen, more hydrogen-based uh, solution. That's fascinating. And I think many people would find that um, inspiring, the sense that we can um, um, quickly develop another technological. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's not it's, easy. But I, no, it's not easy. It's, it's, but it, but it's, it's, it can be done. It can be done. But I just want to just stay on this point about the, the, the gas levy, because obviously we're going through a rather cold winter at the moment. Sure. We've had a difficult year. Many are working from home. Uh, and so with higher bills than they might have, they're not going into their place of work. Um, is this a year? Um, is next year a year when uh, that kind of, of measure is um, is actually acceptable, given the pressure people are, are under? I agree. I think, and also we've had, um, and one of the things that we can't account for is the gyrations in the in the wholesale price of energy, things like the oil price. Uh, that's gone up quite considerably in the last year. I mean, having created at the very beginning of 2020, it's now creeping up, I think, to sort of $60 a barrel in terms of oil and wholesale coal. And that, that was reflected in uh, Ofgem's announcements, I think, last week uh, about the energy price cap going, going up. So, you know, rising bills is definitely something we need to consider and also there's huge pressure in the economy. But I think um, the, the significance of the gas levy wasn't so much in terms of the level, I just think the concept of, mm. of, of saying that you know, we, we, we can uh, use fiscal measures to discourage people from, from, from using carbon intensive uh, heat sources, I think is an important one. And I think it can be used actually uh, to try and incentivize you know, the move away from, from uh, carbon uh, based heating, if you like. So that that was just I was just making a broad point there. And I, in terms of the level, the, the actual levels of taxation, you you will understand that's not something which um, is is really in my <laughs> in my portfolio. I mean, we'll have to wait and see in the budget what what happens there. Let me just bring in a couple of questions here, and, and this this turns to other countries and how the COP uh, twenty six is going to deal with them. And uh, I've got a pair of questions. Um, one are uh, someone who hasn't given their name saying. How will COP26 deal with those countries who've, whose emissions have grown enormously over the last couple of decades? For instance, China up 151 percent between yeah, sure. 2000 and 2015, India up 82 percent. And there's a, a, a parallel shorter one from Barry Woods saying China is promising to be carbon neutral by mm -hmm. 2060. Why should we believe them? Yeah, look, I think that's a, a fair point. And if you look at the, the story of these, uh, I'm, you know, I've written about this. I mean, China, the growth of China is probably the single biggest economic event in the last 50 years. And they have massively ramped up their, their um, carbon emissions. But I've always felt that it was uh, almost condescending to assume that we cared more about our grandchildren than they did about theirs. Uh, they know that there's an environmental problem in China. They know that, uh, you know, the rivers uh, there are, are very polluted. The air is very polluted. 
And they didn't want to leave a, a dirty China to their grandchildren any more than we want to leave a dirty UK to ours. And I think that their commitment uh, to uh, net zero by 2060, uh, we, we've got to figure out how they're going to get there. But I think the commitment is a genuine one because they see, they not only see the environmental impact in terms of their own environment and their own rivers and their own um, you know, polluted air, but they also see an economic opportunity <clears throat> because they see that the world, uh, whether they like it or not, is moving towards uh, a net zero. I think the Biden administration has a big part to play in this. Uh, what Biden has been saying about um, you know, decarbonization, about the climate emergency. Uh, America, after all, is China's biggest market and has been for 30, 40 years. Um, there are strong economic reasons and strong uh, environmental reasons, frankly, why I, I fully believe that they're utterly sincere in, that, in, in having that target. Now, what they do to get there, um, you know, that's part of an ongoing conversation. And we're going to have those sorts of conversations in G7. I haven't mentioned G7, but we've got the um, presidency of G7 this year and also in COP26. But I don't doubt their sincerity. I think most uh, people uh, around the world, most governments in, in you know, advanced economies uh, understand the, the, the logic and the, and the, and the need to, to decarbonize. I was going to ask you this, and thanks for bringing us to that point, of what use the UK might make of the G7 to advance um, some of this, um, some of the COP26 plans? I think for, for me, and, and I think also for the uh, COP26 uh, president uh, designate, uh, Alok Sharma, my predecessor, I think G7 is very much a um, almost like a precursor to COP. We can't see them discreetly. I think we've got to try and uh, do a lot of the 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 um, early influencing, the early suggestive, um, you know, points. Uh, we need to shape some of the conversation at uh, COP26 uh, previously at the G7, and I think G7 ministerial meetings uh, that I have uh, with counterparts uh, and also other ministers will have, particularly uh, the Secretary of State for um, International Trade. Uh, you know, we're all going to be talking about the, the net zero agenda. We'll be talking about uh, decarbonisation. I think the Prime Minister has made it very clear that this is uh, a central priority of this government. Um, and uh, I think G7 will be very much a, a precursor. The conversations we have at G7 will very much be a precursor, a kind of uh, staging post, if you like, uh, ahead of the COP26 conference in uh, the, the, the Conference on Climate Change in, uh, in November. Okay, thank you for that. Got a question from Tom Sass, who's one of the associate directors at the, at the IFG, and he's uh, and he's written a lot of our net zero work. And he's um, saying, look, the policies announced in the 10 point plan do not put the UK on a path to net zero. By some estimates, they leave us off track for the fourth and fifth carbon yeah. budgets. What plans does the government have for further policy measures and a full plan ahead of the plan? So the 10 point plan, uh, announced in, at the end of 2020 was never intended to be a, 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 a cast uh, watertight, cast iron watertight uh, path to net zero. It was meant to be the start of, of a process. And if we did implement everything in there, it would get us some a large way uh, to uh, hitting those targets. We need other policies, absolutely. And that's why the department has a heat and building strategy, I think coming out uh, in the next six weeks. Uh, hopefully in the first quarter this year. Uh, and that's a, a strong priority of mine to try and get a debate about how we uh, decarbonize uh, buildings and heat. There's also 
a strong um, element of agriculture. How do we decarbonize agriculture? That's a conversation uh, that needs to be had. And of course, the way in which we account for uh, emissions, you know, in, in our trade, you know, imported uh, carbon uh, emitting goods or goods which have emitted a ton of carbon in their production. Uh, all of these things uh, need to be addressed. I've spoken about a multilateral action on um, carbon leakage. Um, and you, the questioner is absolutely right. We don't, we haven't got the policies that get us uh, there, but I think there are a lot of areas in which we need to think about more policies and, 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 and more legislation. But the 10-point plan is clearly a start. And I, as, I, as I said in my introductory remarks, you know, when I started the, the energy job in July uh, 2019, is less than two years ago, uh, we, were, we were much, much further away from uh, uh, the, the, the goal that we'd set ourselves. You take one from James Dowling, who says, how big a role will solar play in the upcoming CFD auction? That's the contracts for difference, which uh, I know yeah. expert or, or uh, very, very expert audience, but uh, that's one of the government's main mechanisms for getting to a low carbon economy. Um, and he says uh, you need an ambitious pot to build scale and a competitive market. So again, I mean, I don't want to sort of trumpet all the achievements we've had in, in Bayes uh, in the, the energy space uh, in the last 18 months. But in January last year, I think actually February last year, we announced the pot one auction. And you will know that the pot one auction uh, includes onshore uh, wind and also solar. That was suspended in 2015. So in 2015, going into 2015, I stood on the manifesto in, uh, in the Conservative Party, which essentially delayed onshore. We had a look at this. I looked at this with uh, the Secretary of State uh, at the time, and we said that you know, in order to deliver net zero, we had to resuscitate uh, the pot one auction. And that's exactly what we did. Um, and I think uh, for the first time in five years, onshore wind developers, solar wind uh, developers will have the opportunity uh, to, to bid uh, for capacity in this, in this uh, auction round. And I think that will grow. We'll, we'll see uh, what the uh, the cap is, um, but I think the Porsche in, in subsequent rounds, the pot one auction, I think, will be hugely important in terms of um, you know helping us reach our decarbonisation uh, targets uh, in power generation. Okay, thank you for that. And we've got questions, as we did right through yesterday, about the Cumbrian coal mine and whether the yeah. government can, good conscience, go ahead with uh, giving it permission. What's, what's your view? Look, I think this is a. Ambrad said no way. <laughs> well, that's uh, very pleased to hear. Uh, she's uh, characteristically forceful in her in her views, but um, I, I, I think it was a difficult issue. Uh, I fully understand that uh, one of the, the you know, it, it's a slightly mixed message to some people, but at the same time, we are committed to the steel industry, and the issue there was the the coking coal. It's two different things. So there's the coking coal, which is used in steel production and there's thermal coal which is used uh, in electricity uh, generation power generation and the view was that uh, it was a local decision so it was the local council that decided uh, to give the go-ahead uh, to uh, the, the coal mine the secretary of state didn't uh, overrule them uh, in the interest of sort of uh, local power local uh, devolution and and as i as i read now I'm understanding that the council is re-looking at, at, at their decision. But I think there was a finely balanced argument in terms of the fact that if you don't produce coking coal and you have blast furnace steel, which we have, they're going to end up importing the coking coal anyway. So in terms of the global reduction of emissions, it doesn't, it doesn't actually make any effect, actually increases it. 
because you, you're, you're, you're essentially shutting down a domestic source of goking coal and importing it from halfway around the world. So those, those are the finely balanced arguments. And it was felt that, um, you know, if we are committed to the steel industry, which we are, and we still have blast furnaces, that having a domestically sourced uh, uh, source of uh, uh, coking coal made more sense for, for a number of reasons. That was, that was the, the thinking behind it. But as I say, I think the local councillor, as I read a couple of days ago, is revisiting this, this whole issue. Uh, that, that's fascinating. I, I suspect you and your colleagues will have to get very fluent in that argument if um, if, if, if the thing isn't revisited, because um, uh, it is an argument. Uh, sure, but, sure. Uh, but these these symbols uh, stand for a lot. No, no, it's it's. I, I understand. It's a difficult issue. I, I totally understand that. All right, we will have one from a Stanley Johnson uh, from the Conserv Conservative Environment Network. This is, I believe, the Prime Minister's father, who's now international. Hello, ambassador. Stanley. How are you? Very good to see you. Well, I can't see you. I but hope it's he's not going to burst onto the screen right now. So <laughs> let me just read out this question, which, which is, would you like to see COP26 adopt by consensus the global goal of carbon net zero by 2050 as a complement to the Paris Agreement? Um, the Paris Agreement's global goals, that is not more than two degrees centigrade uh, increase, better, only 1.4 degrees centigrade increase. I detect that he's been constrained by the uh, size of the box. What he wanted. Okay. Look, if we get, if we got agreement, uh, international agreement on a net zero target, I think that would be a hugely significant uh, step. I'm not expecting that. I think there's still a number of countries, number of uh, developing countries that require more persuasion. But what we are trying to do is to increase ambition on this. And as I say, all I can talk about uh, with, with extreme vividness is, is my own experience. Um, and I was told very firmly 18 months ago that there was no way that it made any difference what we did because China was still not committed to this. The fact that the Chinese said that they wanted net zero by 2060, and there was no real pressure for them to say that, um, I think was hugely significant. It was also significant that this, when they said that, I think in October last year, within about two or three weeks, the Japanese had committed themselves to a net zero target at 2050 and the South Koreans had done so uh, in, by 2050. I'm told, uh, as far as I understand, the, there was a debate within the Indian government about uh, coming out with a, with a target in a year. And I think uh, in politics that these indicative targets uh, have a huge symbolism, huge impact, even when people like we did when we passed 2019, we didn't really know how we were going to get there. Uh, and um, yet we, within 18 months, as I said, we had much more granularity, <coughs> much more specific policies about the, our, our, route, our route towards uh, net zero. Now purists say, well, this isn't enough, but I can tell you it's a, it's a, it's a much bigger step and a much uh, more positive development uh, than appeared possible uh, only in the summer of 2019. OK, thank you for that. I've got one from Lucy Johnson. I think no relation um, uh, and, and several other people uh, just digging in on this point about uh, green hydrogen. And she's saying, how are you going to ensure that we use green hydrogen as part of our central heating and how will its production be paid for and scaled up as uh, creating hydrogen is currently carbon intensive? Um, uh, I think that's a fair point. Yeah, she's saying not the panacea that that that. that conversations about hydrogen might suggest yeah it's not a panacea nothing is a panacea i mean that's one thing you learn very quickly as an energy minister there's no one technology that's going to solve all our problems um people talk about uh, nuclear fusion they talk about hydrogen they talk about all of these things but it, it, if, if anything it'll be always be a mix of technologies that is likely uh, to be uh, the answer to our problems 
But particularly about uh, hydrogen, we're coming up with a hydrogen strategy in, in the next few months. I commissioned that as energy minister. And the key point of the, the hydrogen strategy is that we're doing both. Uh, we're, we're essentially uh, playing in both uh, tournaments. We're doing green hydrogen, which is electrolyzed and produced hydrogen. And we're also uh, producing blue hydrogen, which uh, has to flow uh, also from the methane uh, reformation process and is uh, allied uh, closely with carbon capture. We made announcements not only in the manifesto, but in the budget about, and also in the 10 point plan about uh, you know, our ambitious plans for carbon capture. I think blue hydrogen at the moment is, is, more, cheap, uh, is uh, more cheaply produced uh, yeah. than green hydrogen. And in order to create a capacity to create a market, I think blue hydrogen is, is probably necessary in the first instance. And then once we've created uh, enough production capacity and demand for hydrogen, I think uh, the, the costs of green hydrogen will come down much as they did in the generation of offshore wind. Um, and we may do that through an auction process or something similar. Um, and then, so the two, so it's a twin track uh, strategy. It's a blue hydrogen and a green hydrogen strategy in the first instance. And then if we can uh, get the green hydrogen production down the cost curve, I think green hydrogen will have a bigger and bigger role to play. But that's that's the, the path that we that we we see. I'm going to just squeeze in one more from Chris Peters. An interesting point. Um, Subnational carbon targets have proven effective in engaging local action on net mm -hmm. zero. For example, the 2038 uh, target in, in Manchester. Uh, so the question reads: uh, Can we do more to encourage targets like these? In order I think we can. I mean, I think. Uh, well, do, do they work though? I mean, um, well, I, I think in terms of. I mean, one of the things that I've seen again only in the last two or three years is a much greater awareness of, of net zero. Now, for the majority of the public, I think there's still a, a long way to go. But I was very surprised uh, campaigning in the, in the December 2019 election, how often, in fact, uh, green issues, you know, net zero actually came up on the doorstep. I mean, it wasn't at everyone's on everyone's lips, but, I, you know, I've been a candidate in five general elections, and this one was by far uh, the, 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 the only election I can remember where green issues actually came up spontaneously uh, in as far as, you know, you would knock on someone's door and they would quickly enter into a conversation about uh, decarbonisation, about climate change. And, you know, the, things like the Australian bushfires were very much in people's minds. So I think um, having local targets uh, is a really good way of, of focusing uh, people on in the grassroots on, on this issue. And I think we could do a lot more actually in raising awareness through local targets, local debate, climate assemblies, uh, citizens uh, assemblies, uh, and that kind of thing. And I think I've said to colleagues in government that we could do a lot more in, in, in that space, trying to mobilize uh, the public uh, to a greater extent on, on these issues. Well, I've promised that we finish at, at half past. We've in fact gone one minute over. Uh, okay. There are tons of great questions, uh, as you know, in this subject, and the, and the, the, the questions are all good uh, and they're, they're uh, keeping rolling there, but uh, we don't have time to answer them. So, um, or you do, in particular, you don't. So, Secretary of State, thank you very much. Indeed. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed great that. Pleasure. And everyone, thank, thank you. you very much indeed for watching and thank you for these great questions. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Bye bye.